Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. So today here I'm with Hirsch Wilson, the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. Never needed a field guide like this. <laughs> then now we're in COVID-19. We are in a world where there are wildfires all over the West Coast. We have brave men and women out there doing everything they can to keep us safe. We got first responders who are just and people in hospitals who are, are doing everything they can. Let's talk about your life leading up to this book. What created your desire to write it? Tell us about you and Firefighter Zen. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think, as you said, I think this is a hugely, this is an extraordinary time we're living through. I think we, we just have to have a shout out to everybody on the front lines of COVID and fighting the fires right now out in California. Yeah, so their, their thoughts and prayers are with them all day long. I was not one of those people who watched 911 emergency growing up and, and wanting to be a firefighter or a paramedic. That was so far from my world. I grew up in rural Minnesota. I went to college in Colorado. I quit college to become a dancer. I was a dancer for 10 years. And then my knees wore out. So I became a pilot and, and a writer. And, and I was married and we moved out. My wife and I moved out to Santa Fe in 1982. And she got a job at a conference center outside of Santa Fe. And one day, one of the guests fell and broke her ankle. And so Lori, being Lori, they did everything they could, but no one had any first aid training or anything. So they, got, they called the local ambulance and they transported the person to the hospital. Well, Lori, just because she's a stubborn Norwegian, said, this is never going to happen again in my watch. So she decided to go to an EMT school, emergency medical technician school, so that she could be medically prepared. And she went through it six months later. She passed the class and the instructor said, you know, Lori, if you want to keep your skills fresh, why don't you join the volunteer fire department? Mm. So she thought that was a great idea. But what she heard was that both of us should join <laughs> fire department. <laughs> and she came home and told me, and I thought she was out of her mind because I had no idea. I'd never heard of a volunteer fire department. Right. And I couldn't imagine myself, you know, using an ax to chop down a door and all the men in my family had a problem with, with blood and gore. So that wasn't going to work. <laughs> so, so, but she dragged me to our first meeting and we went, we went in, sat in the bay, all the trucks had been pulled out and there were about 20 people sitting there in the bay. And this was their medical team. And they were just this eclectic group of, of great people. And I was kind of in awe of them for what they did. And they were passing around this picture. They had just had a fatal car accident the week before. And they were passing around this picture of the, the car in the crash. And unfortunately, the man who had been killed. 
And Lori looked at it and she, you know, she's with all her medical knowledge. Now she was just really intrigued by the mechanism of injury. And then they passed it to me and I looked, took one look at the guy and I almost passed out. <laughs> and Lori said, turned to me and said, well, maybe you can just run the trucks. Right? <laughs> and, and that's how she got me into the department. So, it, you know, she it was, she was an enthusiastic beginner and loved it. It took me about three or four months to realize that this was really a part of my life that had been missing. And I fell in love with being a firefighter and, you know, went to emergency medical technician school and, and have been on the department for 33 years since then. The part of the book I thought was great was the coming to grips with being on call and realizing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The sacrifice that would be required that maybe. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what happened was after three months of training from the fire department, they gave us our pagers and sent us home. And so we celebrated and at about nine o'clock at night, all of a sudden we heard this horrendous screeching sound and we turned and said, what the hell is that? <laughs> and it was our pagers. And this voice came over the pager saying, Hondo, you have a car fire, old Las Vegas highway. And Lori turned to me and said, wait, they're going to page us at night. <laughs> 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 and, and, you know, then we, then it was like 10 minutes of saying, what should we wear? <laughs> what are we going to do with the dogs? How do we get out of the house? And, you know, we, and we finally got dressed and we were so adrenalized. We, li- we lived on this long dirt road. We were so adrenalized that I, I think we hit about two trees <laughs> responding to our first call. And then we got there and the fire was out basically. And they, they just looked at us like we were crazy people. But first calls, you always remember your first call. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So as you became more and more immersed in this and realizing what, you know, really understanding what this was and the effects that you're having on people and, the, you know, the impact that these scenes were making on you. Tell us about that progression into seeing some of the most brutal and disturbing realities there are, and also seeing some of the most profound heroism that people can demonstrate. Will you share a little bit about what that was like for you? I was one of the really lucky firefighters in that I had three or four years of going to minor calls and nothing really, really bad. And, and so you think, hey, this is cool, right? I get it. I'm serving the community. Uh, everything's fine. And then you had your first horrific call. And mine was I had a woman, a mom in front of her kids essentially die under my care. Mm-hmm. And it, it just shocked me. And it's, it was that kind of call that says the kind of universe asks the question, are you ready for this? This is what we talk about when, you're, when you become a firefighter or any first responder. And that really changed my, my whole approach. I mean, it took me a while to get over that call. But then you understand the seriousness of what we do and how incredibly important it is. And you end up understanding that you're going to be with people in some of the worst times of their lives. And it took me a while to kind of say, yes, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. The other thing you do, and, and I think this is a true about all most fire departments is you're surrounded by people who have been doing it for a long time. You hear their stories of what they've done you, and you just, it's remarkable, the heroism, but it's just kind of quiet heroism. They don't talk about it. They don't brag about it. They just say, this is what my life is about. My life is about serving others. Mm-hmm. And the big shift, I think, which is hard in our culture, because we're a very me-centered culture. We're very, it's about me. It's about comfort. It's about possessions. It's about status. 
it's about where we are in the American case system. And uh, I think the big shift comes from, from being me focused to being we focused to saying, aha, I understand that. And, and all the great religions teach this is that our responsibility is to take care of others. And I think the first couple of years of being a firefighter teaches you that, that the reason we're here on this planet is to take care of others. And that is how we find joy. That is how we find fulfillment. And there's really no other path. This really speaks to this show is so largely focused on resilience. So when people experience mm. things together, having a connection there in order to process it, to hear about these things that other people have seen, uh, hearing about how they respond to it, watching them and seeing what are the things they do to take care of themselves or what's a destructive practice that I should avoid, you know, or what that we as a team should avoid because it's not making us ready or healthy to deal with the next one. Will you share a little bit about the resilience that, that comes from having People who are willing to be vulnerable and also in addition to being brave. Will you talk a little bit about getting through those traumatic incidents, the vicarious trauma that you sustain over years and years and years, and truly being a cohesive team that cares about each other in order to keep each other healthy? Yeah, sure. I I think the first thing is to realize that it's a false dichotomy to think that vulnerability and bravery are, are, are two separate things. Right, right. We're both. We're both. And I, th- I think what we've learned, this is 2020, we know a lot more than we did in 1950 about, about masculinity, for example, right. right? So what I've learned in the fire department is that, and, and it applies to life. Life guarantees is tragedy, right? We're all going to go through tragedy. We don't get away from that. We can't escape that. So then the question is, so how, how do we, knowing that, knowing that life is suffering, how do we thrive here? Right. And we thrive here by not trying to do it alone. We thrive here by not trying to stuff it down and, and say, I don't feel anything, which has been tried. And, and, and what happens is there was a survey done by the International Association of Firefighters and 50% of the people who responded to the survey said they had been binge drinking in the last month. Because mm-hmm. traditionally, that's how firefighters dealt with mm-hmm. tragedy. We drank. We did, we did, there was a lot of substance abuse. And part the thing is that tragedy always comes out. It always comes out. You can't shut it down. So what we've learned, I think, is that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to talk about it. That the way we survive tough times is by being in community, by having someone to talk to, to be honest with, and to realizing that we're not super people. We're not supermen. We're not superwomen. We're human beings. And on the fire service, we see, and, and I, I say the same thing for police and other first responders in the military is we see things that we're not supposed to see, right? We th- see things that are just incredibly traumatic. And the best way to deal with that is again, community. It is having a, a resilience practice, having a stress practice, uh, having a purpose in your life. All those things are really important to being resilient and being able to bounce back. And I love the, the saying you have, the definition of resilience you have on your website because that's exactly right. It's that ability to, to bounce back from tragedy and bounce back from tough times. And that's what we're all dealing with right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when you're responding, you have field guides that give you guidance on how to handle, you know, different sorts of threats or different sorts of dangers and to take certain action in certain times. People who are first responders who want to understand how this book will help them, will you share a little bit about how it will? 
A couple of things. I, I, this is the book that I wish somebody had given me when I started <laughs> or somebody had given me when I was 18, actually. And, and so what it does is say, it kind of sets the stage. If you're going to be a first responder, here's what you can expect. Here's the gamut of emotions that you're going to feel. And then what it does is talk about kind of the you know, six key strategies that we can learn to thrive. Because this is a tough business. I mean, you go into it and, you th- and it's all adrenaline and red lights and sirens and breaking down doors, but that adrenaline wears off and you have to have something to replace it to keep the enthusiasm there. And a friend of mine said it very well. He's a paramedic first responder, career guy. He said that you can respond two ways because right now we're in the middle of a, an opiate addiction crisis. And he said, if I respond to another heroin overdose, or a prescription medicine overdose, and I'm pissed off, they have to do it again, they have to do the Narcan again, and this guy's probably gonna overdose again in three or four days. If I just take that attitude, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. But if I say to myself, I'm here to serve others, I'm here to take care of others, I'm doing the best I can with what we have to save this person's life, and if that becomes my mantra, then I feel fulfilled, I feel satisfied. So learning that those strategies early on as a first responder, learning to control your thinking, to discipline your thinking, to understand we're here to serve are really important parts of becoming, of staying in, in the profession and retiring with kind of a healthy body, healthy mind. Right. So I, lay, I lay out the kind of six strategies, you know, being brave, being kind, being useful, being tough, and having a, you know, always having a higher purpose that we're serving. I love the the Zen mention here. It makes an absolute difference when you're focusing your your conscious awareness on the present moment. So you know, although it may be the same person who has overdosed, it may be the same substance that they've overdosed on. It may be the same residence that the person you know that you're administering Narcan in to bring them back. But it is a different situation to have that mindful awareness of that. It allows you to see the differences, the intricacies, the different interactions, what's different there, and to keep your compassion dialed into the present moment in order to truly serve these people with that depth, that compassion that gets past our own emotions or our own comfort or our own, you know, certainly when you're called, you can't say no to going. You have to go. Right, right. So that having that, that present moment awareness really, would you agree, helps you to navigate all of those emotions and those thoughts and frustrations. Well put. And I I would add two things. One is uh, what you're saying. I mean, and the reality is, and it's a very Zen focus is all we have is right now, this moment, that's it. We're not guaranteed the future past is over. So this is it, right? This is it. And boy, firefighters learn that because, you know, our mantra is stuff happens, right? You can walk out of the door today and you can be hit by a car right? There's no guarantee of the future. And, and you have to understand that viscerally. You have to understand that viscerally to really understand the joy of living in the presence, right? In the present. And the other part of it is my hero is Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And just as a kind of reminder, he was a psychiatrist and he lived in Germany and he ended up going to Auschwitz. His wife was killed in the camps and he survived. And his big learning there was that under even arduous circumstances, under the most horrific circumstances that man can do to man, we have a choice. We have a choice in how we respond. And he told the story about 
even in the worst dark days of the camps, there would be men who would give their last crust of bread to somebody else who would make that choice. And that always resonated with me. I read it when I was really young. And, and the, the point to me is that we have a choice in how we choose to respond. We're not in control of the stuff that happens to us. We're not. The universe is un, it's out of our control. It's chaotic. And, and this year, to me, has been a, a great demonstration of that fact. All of us had plans in March. All of us had calendars for the year. What we were going to do, the jobs we were going to apply for, our vacations, and all of us threw our calendars away, right? And that was just a global example of what's true for us as individuals. We are not in control of the events that happen to us. But we are, and we have the choice to, in terms of how we want to respond. You mentioned how this is the book you wish you had when you started. Yeah. Uh, and as you see the young people come through the door and, you know, they may not have experienced much of life's traumas or sorrows and things. And, you know, how are you using this book to really create emotional health and wellness? Are Fire Science Academies incorporating your book into their curriculum? Are you doing speaking on, on these topics? How, how can people get a hold of you and have you impact new firefighters, new first responders with your insights and your wisdom from 33 years of noble service? I think that's the plan. I mean, I, I think the plan is to use the book and also just kind of the work that was, that was done going into the book to uh, work with fire departments and, and first responders everywhere. I'm obviously very passionate about this topic. And they can get hold of me at my, at my website, hirschwilson.com. And that's H-E-R-S-C-H wilson.com. And my email is the same, hirsch.wilson at mac.com. I think about any vocation that serves the public in the, on the front line, whether it's police, whether it's first responders and fire it's a sacred profession. And I think that's what people have to learn. I mean, we get so caught up in the mechanics of stuff, like how to lay a line, how to use SCBA, how do you do the house stuff. But we have to understand that when we're serving people, when we're, when we're taking people in the worst times, that's a sacred profession. We have to really kind of deeply understand that. Firefighters as a group are, are pretty jaded. They're pretty sarcastic. You know, there's, it's a tough, it's a tough audience, <laughs> but at core, I think we all realize that what we're doing is, is really important work. And that brings me to, you know, people oftentimes, especially when different attributes of our first responders are, you know, seen, you know, whether it's 9-11, seeing the absolute bravery and honor of men and women who went to save lives and lost their own in the process or, you know, certain events in our history really key in the public's awareness to just how difficult this job is and the challenges that are faced and the acts of heroism that largely are not known or seen or discussed because of the humility of these men and women who go to work every day, who go to the call no matter what it is, and they do incredibly heroic work how can people who want to do something meaningful for our first responders use this book to do something that's more than just, you know, coming by and saying thanks, but does something above and beyond to really do something meaningful for these men and women who are protectors in our community? I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, when you look at the firefighter population, there are about 1.2 million firefighters in the United States. 700,000 of, 700, of those are volunteers 
right? And and especially in our small communities and medium-sized communities, there's volunteers. We, we're in a crisis of losing volunteers, although numbers are ticking up recently. But boy, if you're interested at all in that kind of service, we sure need you. We sure need you. I think the other thing is what happens, and this is my, my kind of jaded side, is we're all very conscious of first responders now, nurses and doctors and firefighters and, and police. And then what happens is when all the excitement goes away, budgets get cut. <laughs> and that's going on right now, right now. I mean, I think we need to step up as citizens to say we need to support the people who are really here to keep us safe. Absolutely. Anything else you want to share? The book is amazing. I loved it. The instant I, I saw it, I wanted to have you on the show. I feel really grateful you took time out to talk with me. Of course. Um, certainly in you know the people in my community who are first responders, I'm definitely going to be aggressively trying to get this book in their hands and trying to get you as many speaking gigs as I can. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's so needed. And, you know, it, Get Up Nation is a, it's a global network of resilient people who are committed to creating legacies of profound positive impact. And a day in your life, you're, you never have to worry about whether you have made a significant difference in this world when you do the type of work that you've done. And you've done it for 33 years. You know, is there anything that you would like to say to anybody out there who's suffering from suicidal thoughts, their their post-traumatic stress disorder, people who have been in the trenches and experienced these awful things? Is there anything that you would offer to say to them today who may be listening to this? Absolutely. I, I think let's start with the headline. If if you're having suicidal ideation, get help. Yeah. Right? Get help. There's a suicide support line. There are all kinds of resources out there. Don't beat yourself up. Don't feel guilty, but get help. I think the same thing with PTSD. It is a disease. It's a physiological disease. It's not about character. It's not about weakness. It is a, is a, is a disease, and we know how to deal with it. So those are the kind of top-line things. I think the, the other thing is to kind of – and this is not just for people. I mean, right now, I think we're all, we have, all have a tremendous amount of anxiety. So how do we deal with that? How, do, how can we prevent the anxiety from getting worse? And there are a couple of practices. I think one is to have a practice to deal with stress, right? That you can fall back on. And whether that is taking walks, I take a walk every morning with my dogs. It is kind of fundamental to my Zen practice and my, just my, my wellness practice. But yoga, uh, any kind of thing, self-talk, journaling, have a practice for dealing with stress. I think the other thing that is come out in the research is being physically active, right? Being physically active helps us deal with stress. Tons of research on that. The next thing is community, is to be a part of community. The, the Lone Ranger myth is a myth. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger. doesn't exist. Everything we've done in this country that's been great has been by us coming together. And in tough times like this, when we're physically isolated, it's really important to have a social network. So let go of kind of the individual cowboy thing and, and let's find community. Next is how we frame our thinking, what we think about, and that's just having a mental discipline to control our thinking. And as a firefighter, you know, we have a choice about how we think when we go to a bad call and we need to discipline our thinking, control our thinking. You know, our mantra is, a lot of our mantras are really simple. It's like, this is not my tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's, a, it's my job. It's my vocation. But I'm not going to let the panic of people around me get inside me. It's mm -hmm. my job, right? 
So the ability to be flexible with your thinking is really, really important. I think the other thing is, whether it's religious, spiritual, or secular, have a purpose in your life, yeah. right? Find that purpose. Find a way to contribute to the greater good. That's kind of the North Star. When you have a North Star like that, it makes a huge difference in our mental health. When we're kind of just out there lost without any idea why we're here, or what my meaning is, or what my purpose is, it can get dark really quick, and especially now. So I think it's really important to develop that sense of purpose in your life. Hirsch, it's been an honor to talk with you here today. Like I said, I'm just so impressed by you and what you have done with the time that you've been given. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why with my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. Love to. All right. Who are you thankful for today? Boy, I'm so thankful for my family. This last couple of months have really, has really taught me how important my family is. And, and you know, we, we always talk about where do you want to live and and we've been, my, one of my daughters just moved to Minnesota. And I realized that as long as I'm with my family, I'm home, right? No matter where we are, it doesn't matter geographically as long as my family, I'm home. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for what my father and my mom taught me. We grew up in the 50s and 60s in a very racist world. And my mom was always this gener- had this generosity of spirit and never allowed that kind of stuff in her house. So I'm thankful for that. And I, my dad was just an amazing, out of the box, challenge everything, follow your passion stinker. So I think I'm really thankful and grateful for that. How do you fuel the fire within you? That's a great question. And it's a challenging time right now. So I think what fuels me is no, right now knowing that that people are hurting, people are, are looking for solace and for a way to get out of here. So being able to get up every morning and really kind of help there has been really important and motivating to me. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? That you can bounce back. That no matter how hard things are, we can bounce back. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Well, talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> But part of the joy of being 70 is you really realize two things, that you can do an extraordinary amount, right? That you're capable of a ton of, a ton of stuff that you never thought you were capable of. And I think the other thing is you realize, oh my God, is that everybody's walking around with self-esteem issues, <laughs> right? And that's, that's stopping people from doing what they want to do. So my big lesson is, Boy, don't listen to those ridiculous voices in your head. Go do what you're here to do. And then what will you do tomorrow? You may have never thought you could. For me personally, to continue writing and continue work on a novel, those are the kinds of things that uh, keep me keep me going. Amazing. I can't wait to have you on the show again with your next book. You have a space here whenever you want it. Anytime you have to give, uh, would love to just hit you up for more of your wisdom, insights, and knowledge here to help you make us all better. You make our time. Love to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? They can hit me up on my website, hirschwilson.com. I'm on Facebook as Hirsch Wilson author, and they can always email me. <laughs>